You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. There are many of us who are white, who are deeply ashamed of, grieved by, and repent of the atrocious, century-long experience of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy. We recognize, although not nearly as fully as we need to do, that we have been profoundly shaped by and individually have been complicit and participated in a powerful racist culture. Although it is shocking to us, and we often are unwilling to admit it, we are racist, but we don't want to be. We want to be part of the solution, a part of ending the legacy of racism, a part of the healing that needs to occur. Unfortunately, we don't know how and don't have or haven't developed the resources to enable us to do so. One of the many things that I learned from Meta Commerce is the importance of white people telling their own racial story. Robert P. Jones has modeled that for us on a historical and cultural scale in his two books, The End of White Christian America and White Too Long, the Legacy of White Supremacy in Christian America. These books are wonderful in helping open up our understanding, but they do not provide the structure and resources to allow us personally, as individual white people, to tell our race stories and to change our lives. Dr. Benjamin Boswell is providing us with such a resource. Dr. Boswell is pastor of Myers Park Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He has developed a course he is in the process of distributing that can be used broadly and in many contexts by different people to enable those of us who are white to engage more truly and faithfully in racial healing. Ben is here today to share with us his own spiritual and racial journey and to give us a fuller understanding of the nature of his course. So welcome, Ben. Thank you for being with me. So glad to be here. Um, why don't we begin by letting you tell your own spiritual journey, uh, especially as that has led you uh, to being involved in this work of racial healing. Mm. Well, thanks, David. Um, thanks for the invitation. Always uh, a joyous one to go back and, and relive and think through one's life um, and how we tell this story, how I tell this story changes every time I tell it, um, I think, because I, I see new things in my past that uh, have been revealed to me through the work that I've been doing. You know, I, I come from a, a long line of Methodist ministers on my mother's side. So I was raised very deeply entrenched in the Methodist tradition. Um, and by that, I mean a white, predominantly white Methodist, United Methodist churches. Uh, my grandfather was a United Methodist minister um, and retired. And then my uncle was a retired Methodist minister for 40 years. Both my cousin, his son, and I uh, were at, at Duke and Seminary at the same time. Um, so we have a lot of Methodism. You know, Dick Heinsohn, writer who writes on Methodism a lot, was a, a close friend of the family. And we just have, we're just sort of steeped in Methodism. My mother considered going to seminary for a while and leaving her career as a college professor. Um, they were in Emmaus, which is sort of a, a very intense weekend spiritual retreat kind of community uh, that my parents were involved in that was very important to their spiritual lives growing up. So I spent a lot of time at church. 
It didn't matter where it was. Um, and my Methodist upbringing, uh, in, in many ways, is feels tied so deeply into my formation uh, into whiteness and my formation into um, Americanness, which was all sort of part of the game. I, you know, I was a Boy Scout as a kid, um, which also came happened at the church, right? So I was learning about God and country and outdoor skills and responsibility and all those things through the Boy Scouts while I was also going to youth group and, and youth programming and playing in the church basketball league and going to church on Sunday. And so my, 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 my background, my childhood, my growing up years, very steeped in, in, in heavily religious Methodist community. Um, I was there every time the church doors were open. My parents were very active leading Bible studies in Sunday school. And I see now that that was, uh, that my Christianity, the formation in Christianity and my formation uh, as a child in the church was also part of my formation into uh, into this the culture of whiteness and what whiteness means. And so, alongside my being raised as a as a Christian, I was also being raised as a as a as a young white boy. And those things went in many ways hand in hand with each other as a childhood. Not necessarily that my parents were cognizant of what they were doing, um, but that was sort of the water I was swimming in. Um, you know, it, it's interesting though, because my family is also very progressive, moderate to progressive all the way down. Um, and it means that I grew up in, in, and had diverse moments of diversity all the way throughout my, my childhood. I went to the same, um, preschool as Larry Holmes daughter, granddaughter, which my parents loved to tell the story. Larry Holmes was the heavyweight champion of the world. And they were so proud that I went to grant preschool and that she and I were close friends in preschool. And they tell this story over and over again. So for, in their consciousness, the fact that I went to preschool um, with, uh, with a diverse group of kids is not really the point of the story, but that I was with the world heavyweight champions, daughter, granddaughter <laughs> was my friend. That was the point of the story that was really important to them. Um, you know, and I, you know, in the school that I grew up in, in I was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. My mother was teaching at Lehigh University at the time in, in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Our school was very, very white, very, very white. In fact, uh, probably more Hispanic students than there were African-American students when I was going to school there. Um, so the, uh, just a lot of a lot of whiteness, almost all white teachers and um, and and advisors, administrators. And uh, so very white upbringing in that context, although up north, it was a very different kind of way of thinking about race than it is in the south. Um, it's um, just different, a, a very not doesn't have the same entrenched history uh, related to slavery and Jim Crow. But there's still racism, nonetheless, uh, a different kind of uh, of racism. I remember actually as a child, m more jokes about other white people that I was learning. Uh, in fact, one of my friends, I remember going over to his house and his family had a joke book, uh, joke books about every different uh, white ethnic group. So there's a joke book about Irish, a whole, like hundreds of pages of jokes, a whole joke book about Irish folks, a whole joke book about Italians, a whole joke book about Germans, you know, a whole joke book about Polish folks. Right. And so they have a whole joke book. And if you want to have a joke about an Irish person, pull it right off the <laughs> shelf and you've got a hundred jokes about Irish folks. And wow. so a reminder of uh, those communities, Irish, for instance, and Italians who weren't considered white for a long time in American history uh, and earned their way into whiteness, as many immigrant groups do um, over time through their assimilation into white culture. Um, and so 
we can talk about that later. But I, I was re- I'm remembering those inter-ethnic debates, those are far more pronounced in the North than they are in the South, where everybody is just white and black, white and black, a little Latino here and there in, in the South. Um, so then I came to the South with my parents when I was a junior in high school and um, started uh, finished uh, high school in Kannapolis, North Carolina. My school was predominantly black. Um, A.L. Brown High School here was one of the one of the only schools I knew of at the time anywhere that had had a black prom king and prom queen for many years running, which it only really happens when most of the school is black. Um, and I was one of the one of two white people on the boys basketball team, varsity basketball team. I played varsity football there as well. And I guess the reason I say that is because a lot of folks who play sports that are white imagine that they understand black people and black culture because they've spent time uh, around a lot of black people since sports like basketball and football are, are, have a lot of African-American people who play them. And I sort of was like that too. I had this sort of colorblind Christianity that I had inherited from the Methodism that I've been steeped in. And then I had sort of my colorblind, oh, we're all just football players trying to do our best out here. And I'm learning about your culture. You're learning about mine. We're on the bus together for hours and hours on these away games. And I guess I thought at the time as growing up that I, because I had so many black friends and I was around black people all the time and I was a person of faith that I, that I got it on race. Uh, and that's sort of the, to me, the summary of my story. And I'll, I'll tie it up with a, another example here really has to do with this idea of many stages of my life feeling like I was one of the good white people who had black friends and got it. And that's true also. I went to seminary. I did a PhD in moral theology and ethics at Catholic University of America. You know, I went to seminary at Duke. Um, I, I, I thought I knew it about what I thought I knew what I needed to know about race. You know, we were not we were a not racist family or we thought we were a not racist family. Um, it wasn't until uh, while I was in uh, postgraduate work working on my PhD in moral theology and ethics, that the most powerful uh, ethical moment in my whole life happened. And that was that uh, my, my wife at the time and I could not conceive children of our own. And so we decided to adopt. And we made a decision that we would be open to any race of child, which is a question they ask you when you go through the adoption process. And what happened was that a family, a birth mother, an African-American woman chose us to be the person that would adopt her child. And she asked us to be in the, in the, at the hospital with her on the day of the delivery and to take care of uh, our, my daughter now, whose name is Lucy, she's 11, to take care of Lucy while she was recovering um, and then to be the one to take her home from the hospital. And so we did that. And it was the process of adopting a black daughter in 2010 uh, and learning as a white man, white father, uh, and a pastor, how to raise a black daughter in what is now become, I consider it Black Lives Matter America, you know, the, the resurgence of the black freedom movement as a response to uh, the continued oppression of black people in American society, learning how and trying to figure out how to raise a black daughter as a white father and as a white pastor in America since 2010, that has been my awakening. That has been where I have come to realize that I had not really understood what I thought I needed to understand. I understood on race. And the thing that continued to be a problem that I kept missing was my own whiteness and how my own white racial formation uh, was inhibiting my ability to actually understand and 
take responsibility for my racial identity so that I could then um, be a true um, uh, ally or co-conspirator uh, as part of the uh, the Black Freedom Movement for Justice in America. So this this is where my journey begins. It really begins with my daughter, and I've had so many so many uh, instances with my daughter and and learning how to raise her that have opened my eyes in ways that would never have been opened otherwise. And I'm not recommending, David, that everybody has to adopt black children. I'm so, that's not everybody's journey. And there are some, there's some challenges with that being transracial adoption is, is a difficult thing. Um, but I will say that that process for me was a, a, ma- a major revelation, a total catalyst for my, my journey. And I've had a lot of other growth points along the way, but if it wasn't for that, I would not be where I am now. Because it was really trying to figure out how to be her father, be my daughter Lucy's father, that um, forced me to change in ways uh, that I needed to change, forced me to confront parts of my own history that I was not willing to confront. Well, in the material you sent me um, as a kind of prep work, uh, in both of them, uh, you quote James Baldwin uh, saying that white people are trapped in a history they don't understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. Uh, kind of explain what that that quote means to you. That quote is the foundation of all my work, both individually and what I do as a pastor and anti-racist educator in the community as a preacher. Um, I think what I realized through that quote from Baldwin, which was for me a, a true conversion experience, reading James Baldwin, um, more more powerful than any conversion experience I had as a child, was reading what James Baldwin describe how James Baldwin describes white people. For me, was a radical religious conversion experience, and this quote for me is. Um, my mantra that I give to myself and my students as they begin to take this journey of looking at their own whiteness. Because if you forget this, looking at your own whiteness is a very hard, um, almost an existential crisis kind of process um, that is sometimes can get very confusing, intellectually um, uh, complex. But if you continue to go back to this quote, it will guide you as you do your work. I have found this myself and a lot of folks who've gone through my course have found this, that it's like a mantra that you can say, white people are trapped in a history they don't understand. So if you just do the work of trying to understand the history, then you can start to find that there may be hope to move outside of this history that we're trapped in. In fact, our own sort of liberative path to freedom from this soul-crushing, dehumanizing um, um force ideology that is whiteness starts with taking responsibility for our history and so we begin by saying that the first it's almost a confession we're trapped in a history we don't understand first of all most white people will never say that because they believe they understand their own history and and to to believe that we understand our own history is to imagine that every institution that we have been educated in has given us the pure truth the church has been truthful to us. Our ed- public education or private education system has been truthful to us. Our college that we went to has been truthful to us. Our parents uh, have been truthful to us. And so it starts with some intellectual humility to admit, well, they wouldn't still be writing history if history was a settled matter, right? 
<laughs> we we wouldn't have historians if, if history was the kind of thing that you could just write and then be done with it. No, history is an ever-evolving discussion because new people are doing research and we're always uncovering not just artifacts, but we're uncovering things that were hidden, ways of telling the story that we didn't tell, ways in which the story was told poorly for us. So this has been a really important part of my life. One example I'll give is my father, uh, who I love dearly, and he and I talk regularly. My father, uh, when I was growing up, didn't have a college education. Uh, had had a little bit of an associate's degree, but was working as a as a, uh, a machinist for most of my life. He worked as a machinist uh, until later in life he did some college teaching. That was after forty years of machine technology, blue collar worker, and he. But he had had a history prof- a history teacher in high school in Virginia growing up, who was a brilliant historian. My father could tell you. In every Civil War battle, when it was fought, where it was fought, who the generals were. He could tell you most of American history and what took place, not because he'd been watching the History Channel. That wasn't out yet. He just read it. He'd done all the reading. But what he was steeped in was lost cause ideology. Lost cause is a particular way of reading American history uh, that romanticizes the South and romanticizes um, the Southern tradition, the Civil War generals, and it's what led us to then put Confederate monuments up in the 1920s and 30s. Um, this romantic, and so many Southerners were steeped in lost cause because lost cause was what the curriculum was in public schools. It wasn't this teacher was teaching something that was not in the curriculum. The curriculum was lost cause. So my father knows history, but he knows a particular version of history that was handed on to him from his teacher who had already accepted the idea that the South needed to be redeemed um, and the Southern culture and its values and its valor of white people um, and the agrarian society basically gone with the wind. Um, Just imagine that is the vision of lost cause. And that's not a true vision of history. It's not a true story, but that's the history he received. All of us received an either an impartial history or a lie. Uh, and this is true no matter what, what school we went to. It doesn't matter if we went to Harvard. Uh, it doesn't matter what, what school we went to in America uh, for public school, private school. It doesn't matter what church we attended as children growing up. We got either an impartial history or a lie or a combination thereof with some truth thrown in there. And so the problem with that is that white people, you know, you, you always hear that the victors are the ones that write history. History is written by the winners. Well, white people have always been the winners in American history. So we've been the ones that have always written the history books. We've been the ones that decide what the curriculum is. So the story is always written in a way that makes us look good, makes us look virtuous, makes us look like the true Americans, the right Americans, um, makes and also often lets white people off the hook for things that we did in history that were really awful. Um, and so you have a, a, a book about a, a children's textbook about slavery that makes slavery look like a, a, a very nicely worked out system where slaves got enough to eat and things were great. And that, re, you know, the Civil War messed all that up or, you know, um, it romanticizes these things that were actually awful, oppressive things. Part of that is also because we want to protect America and American innocence. So we're protecting white innocence and American innocence by telling the story wrongly. Well, we are no good to anybody if we live in that lie, 
that American history is just a beautiful story of white people doing great things. Um, and so we have to go back and do the work of digging into that history and excavating what is the true story there. And I have found that the way to do that for white people is to specifically read black authors and intellectuals. And I, I always recommend going back to W.E.B. Du Bois. That's the beginning point for many for many white people to, be, to go back 100 years at least and read W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction and the Souls of White Folks. And we begin to see there a different telling of history, a telling of history from the underside, which, of course, as a pastor, I believe that's where Jesus would have been telling history from, from the bottom up, from the marginalized. Uh, that's the story of the gospel writers were all those those folks. And so when we get into have letting Du Bois and Baldwin and Toni Morrison and others begin to tell us the story, suddenly we see that it's not the history that we learned. So now we have to relearn our, not only history, but our own story. And that's the first work for white people. And I think in that work is our only possibility for some sense of freedom from the ideology of whiteness that has captivated so many white people in America. Well, you talk about um, your understanding of race as an invention. Mm -hmm. Kind of explain that. Yeah, race is not a biological uh, idea. Race, uh, the Human Genome Project has already proven that uh, I have more in common genetically with an African-American man than I do with uh, a white woman, uh, for instance. And uh, so there is um, genetically race, uh, biologically, genetically, race is, is a fiction. Race is something we invented. Now, you know, there's, there's ethnicity, there's other things, but race is an invention. It's a fiction. It's a social construct. You'll hear scholars of race describe it as a social construct. Um, I like to talk about it as a pastor in terms of it's a lie. Uh, we, we, as human beings, we create stories to help us make meaning of the world. Um, and we live in those stories after we make them. Stories become the, the world we live in. So we sometimes invent the world around us. And whiteness is a story. It's a lie, a fabrication that we created to help make sense of the world that we wanted to live in as white people in America. Um, it's, a, it's a lie that was created by uh, particularly white, wealthy landowners um, that were help, hoping to justify not only colonization, settler colonization in America, but also uh, enslavement. Uh, and also to to it's a lie that also helps connect the white and wealthy with the poor white folks and in solidarity with each other so that poor whites and poor blacks don't rise up together and take the land back from the wealthy landowner. So it functions almost like a police force before there's ever a police force and a, a story that is powerful enough to form a, as a government as laws before there are ever really laws. Um, and it's a lie. It's a it's the lie that people with that Europeans, particularly who invented it, um, that that there are certain people whose skin is of a different color um, that are morally, ethically, biologically superior to everybody else, intellectually superior um, and particularly intellectually superior to enslaved Africans, um, but also intellectually superior to a lot of other uh, groups of color, indigenous Americans, et cetera. And there becomes this sort of hierarchy of color that's created. It's a total fiction with white, wealthy male landowners at the top and enslaved women 
Africans at the bottom and everybody in the middle finds their power in relationship to the top or the bottom, uh, regardless of what group you might be in. And the thing that's the thing that proves that we know that whiteness is a lie are two things that we get through American history that are, that prove it over and over again. And, and African-Americans have known this. This is why they write about it so much is the phenomenon of passing. Passing. There's a new movie about this on Netflix. It's very interesting to watch. Uh, the phenomenon of passing has always been an, a way for people of color to prove to white people that their whiteness is a lie, as a construct, is not real, right? It's not about purity. It's not biology. It's not ethnicity. It's something they made up. Because if, if black people, people who are actually African, can can pass as white, then whiteness is not something that we can that's that's real. So they've been able to prove that it's not true by passing as white, right? That it's that it's something that um, that is not biologically uh, identifiable, right, or real. The other way is by the fact that there are many different groups that look just like me, very white, white-skinned, who have been considered not white legally, not just in the culture, but legally in American jurisprudence throughout history. So there were times when Irish people were legally not considered to be white. Uh, and Italians, for instance, were legally not considered to be white. You can go back and look at census data about immigration policy that, deter that determined which groups were white and which were not. And it was an arbitrary decision determined by uh, uh, the federal government at the time. There was also legal cases in American history where certain groups of people sued to become white and some groups were given access to whiteness and others were not. Uh, so, for instance, Japanese Americans at a particular time in American history sued for access to whiteness and they were denied. And so if it's if it's if it's the kind of thing that Irish people, for instance, are not. In, by the way, also Jews were not considered white uh, for a long time in American history. So whiteness is a social construct. It is something that is created and invented as a tool of social control. And social domination, a hierarchy, a caste system of power, and it is an ideology. The problem, though, is that an ideology, like all things, evolves over time, which is, makes it harder for us to pinpoint down. So I've just already described how over time different groups of Americans have found access to whiteness after they were not considered and then got to be considered white over time. Jews, Catholics, Irish, Italians, etc. Then there are others that didn't get it. But as it evolves over time, it also has a, a, an effect on everybody in society, meaning that whiteness becomes the paradigm for virtue and goodness and truth. And so, and purity, and everything else is below that, uh, to the point where when in Brown versus Board of Education, when they did the famous doll study, they invited children who are African-American to come in and choose a doll, and they asked them, which doll is good? And even the African-American children chose the white doll, right? And why did they do that? Because society had, they had internalized the whiteness of American society. They internalized the idea of white racial superiority. Even, so anybody in society, regardless of their race, again, because race is a construct, can internalize the ideology of whiteness, which is why uh, you might have a person who is Latino, like let's say George Zimmerman, uh, who killed Trayvon Martin, who identifies as white and has internalized whiteness to the point where he's so afraid of a black black people that he kills an unarmed innocent 
young boy on the street corner and claims self-defense, even though he really wasn't. Um, and so this, the color of a person's skin does not necessarily determine um, whether or not they have internalized whiteness or not. Now, people who look like me, who are European of, of European descent, are formed in whiteness from the very days of their ch childhood and their youth and entrenched in it in a different way than any person of color can internalize it. So white people have a lot more work to do. Our history is much more complex and entrenched with the idea of whiteness as virtue, truth, goodness. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered your question there, but I think that's a, that's a part of the, the struggle. No, oh, yeah, I think, I think, I think you, that was an excellent uh, description of it. And, and uh, you mentioned that, that the actual word whiteness is kind of a, a consensus term uh, mm. as opposed to white supremacy, white privilege. Um, well, it's interesting. Yeah, it has a, it ha all words have a history and so does the word whiteness. And so I've stopped using terms like white privilege or white supremacy if I can avoid it. Now, sometimes it just makes more sense to use those words um, and those combination words. But I think the problem with those combination words is sometimes they're ways of preserving the reality of whiteness and its truthfulness by putting another word beside it to say, no, 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 it's only the privilege of whiteness that makes whiteness bad, that whiteness in and of itself is fine. Or it's only when it's supreme that whiteness is bad, that whiteness in and of itself is fine. Almost as if we're trying to preserve the neutrality of white racial identity. White racial identity is not neutral at all. It was invented as a system of domination and control. There's nothing neutral about whiteness. And so this is now you and I having white skin and being European, there might've been something neutral about that at some point in time, but we've been entrenched in the ideology of whiteness that affords those who look like us a particular set of power, economic and political power in American society. So whiteness in and of itself is problematic is, is I would say I, I can unpack this for you, but I consider whiteness in and of itself to be an evil ideology um, and not something that is neutral that you can put another word next to and say, oh, it's the privilege that's the problem. Oh, it's the, 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 the supremacy of whiteness that's the problem. I, those words are already contained within the word white. Whiteness was not constructed as a neutral idea, idea. It wasn't built to be one among many. It was built superior. It was built privileged. It was built with power. It wasn't built as a neutral idea. So it already contained with, within it when it was born the idea of supremacy and privilege. There's no reason to invent such a crazy idea without already investing it with such, such radical significance. Because, of course, David, you know, you and I are not actually literally white. I'm a, Lucy, when she was a child, we used to have this game we'd play, my daughter, and we'd say, well, what's what your skin color? And she'd say, I'm chocolate. And she, I'd say, what's daddy's skin color? And she says, you're peach, you know, because we were using ice cream for everything back then. Back then. And so daddy's peach. Daddy's not white. I had to teach her that people in society will call her dad white. And she's like, well, you don't look like a white piece of paper, right? I don't. So that's another way we understand the invention of this ideology is that it's not actually really whiteness even. It's not even the color. It's, it's a fabrication around skin color um, and around what certain, because that's why some black people are passing and certain uh, social groups, ethnic groups have made their way into uh, whiteness, even though they didn't look white, like Italians and other groups. Um, and so we have to think about um, this, 
this idea of whiteness itself has all the ugliness of of racism baked within it from the start. Um, supremacy, privilege, evil, hatred, all of that's baked into the ideology from the get-go, which is a very hard thing for for people who've been racialized to believe that whiteness is not only not just neutral, but virtuous, good, the best, the smartest, um, the the most pure, for them to then actually be told that actually whiteness, the very idea of it itself, is evil and demonic and um, oppressive uh, forms of social control, that's so challenging. That's where the existential crisis comes. Our formation has told us one thing, but in reality, what whiteness is, is the complete another opposite of that. Well, there, there are kind of two dimensions that I want you to, to, to speak on. Um, one is, is your, your ability to, to actually define whiteness, that you, that you talk about that in terms of, as you had mentioned, uh, uh, a sin or evil, Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 uh, as Willie James Jennings talks about a principality, yep. uh, but that you, 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 you resonate with those, you incorporate those, but that you choose to call it a dominant ideology. Uh, but then also, uh, kind of as a second, uh, dimension, you talk about it as being a structure of denial, uh, uh yes. and, 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 and whiteness is, is, uh, uh, hiddenness. Uh, so kind of talk about each of those, each of those components about defining whiteness, but also understanding it as a structure of denial. Yeah. So this is, um, this is where things get really interesting and why sometimes the work of looking at whiteness can get very complex because it's an ideology that has, that is not always easy to describe in one way. And we need all the tools that we have in our tool belt to try to describe it. I, I, that's why I think it's best to think of whiteness as evil, because if you were trying to describe evil, you would need all the tools that you possibly had, because evil is a concept that is very challenging for most people to really wrap their heads around. And so I think uh, we need the tools of psychology. That's where the denial conversation comes in. We need the tools of philosophy uh, and sociology and other tools, tool belts to look at whiteness as a dominant ideology. I say hegemony but that's words that other might not know, but a dominant ideology. Uh, and then I need, we need the tools as a pastor. I use the tools of theology and scripture and spirituality to try to understand it as well, because I think it's a metaphysical idea. I do think it's bigger than just what human beings are trying to do. I think it's, it, it, how else could you describe how it's had so much power um, in our world, in our lives? And so I think the best comparison to me And this comparison can be stretched in bad ways. So let me admit that. But one of the best comparisons to think about whiteness is to think about whiteness as the ideology of Nazi, right? Nazism, right? Nazism is an ideology. Anybody could be a Nazi in Germany, right? You could decide you're going to believe what Nazi ideology says about it. Uh, And if you were German, it would be much easier because most Germans, you know, went along with Nazi ideology, right? Well, whiteness is an ideology that's a lot like Nazism, right? And so we, this is the problem. We think it's like a neutral thing. It's not neutral. Um, and so we consider it like, uh, like that. So I think the problem with Nazism is the reason we have a lot of books on it is you, it needs to be studied historically. It needs to be studied theologically, 
because there was religious, religiosity was a big part of Nazi ideology. So it needs to be studied theologically and religiously. And then it also needs to be studied psychologically. How did we get to a place where people believed it was okay to exterminate 8 million people? How, how does that happen psychologically and sociologically? So we need all these tools in our tool belt. So when I write about whiteness and try to think about whiteness, I try to bring all the tools I've got in my tool belt to the dis discussion about it. So let me kind of break them down and I'll go from one to the other. So first of all, let's, I'll, let's start with theology and work our way back. So theologically, if we, if we start with the idea that whiteness is a social construct, it's not real, it's not biological, that it's a lie, it's a lie that we told ourselves. One of the simplest ways I talk about race is that, um, and you can, you can replace whiteness with race here, because it's the same thing. We invented whiteness and race at the same time, um, is that race is a lie Europeans created to, to steal, right? So it's not just a lie. It was a lie we created in order to steal. Steal what? Steal people from Africa, steal land from the indigenous, steal power, steal resources. We use the lie in order to steal. It's very clear. You can tell a four-year-old that and they understand exactly what you mean. I created a lie so that I could steal. Now, when that's writ large on the global stage, it becomes a little bit more complex, but, but you can really break it down. Now, if you're a theolo theologian, or you're a moral theologian, I'm an ethicist, a moral theologian. I was trained in moral theology, both in Catholic organizations and Protestant uh, seminaries. So when I look at something and you tell me that it's a lie that somebody used to steal, I know exactly what category it falls in. Evil, sin, period. End of discussion. Uh, it doesn't matter whether I like it. It makes me feel good. It's tied to my identity in ways that I don't know how to extract. It doesn't really matter. If I understand it as a lie, that is used to steal, then I know that it is that it is is evil, it is a sin, and that's a problem, right? And so I have to think about the category of whiteness in that lens theologically. I think also, though, theologically, as Willie James Jennings and others point out, is that whiteness often functions more like a power that is bigger than just individual people, right, who believe a lie and are using it to steal. But it's bigger. It captivates entire nations, institutions. It becomes what Walter Wink called a principality that is a system of domination and control, uh, not a boogeyman demon out there trying to get on your shoulder and tell you what to do, right? As if this is a George Burns movie or uh, some kind of um, you know cartoon about the devil. No, like a literal uh, spirit that takes over, an unclean spirit that has the power to to take over a group of people. You think about those pictures of folks uh, gathered around a lynching. On a Sunday afternoon, uh, there's something demonic in those photos as they stare with glee. You can't describe that without metaphysical language. You can't just say, well, sociologically, they all felt like they needed to come out and look at it. No, there's something demonic in looking at a, at a person hanging from a tree, a human being. That's, that's, you can't, as a theologian, I have no other way to describe that except through demonic principalities. And I see whiteness as the force behind that. Um, the demonic force behind that. Of course, the interesting thing goes back to that quote. I think it can't remember it was screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis. Somebody said the greatest trick that the devil ever the devil ever pulled was convincing people that he didn't exist. Well, whiteness is like that. The greatest trick that whiteness ever pulled is convincing people that it doesn't exist. So a lot of cases, whiteness goes unmarked, unnamed. It's invisible. We never talk about it. White people never 
almost never talk about whiteness. You know, um, now black people talk about whiteness a lot. Uh, other people of color talk about whiteness a lot, but white people don't talk about it. And this is where the psychology comes into it. So how does a group of people enslave millions of other human beings, benefit off of that economically and politically, and continue to create laws that oppress those people for 400 years, and yet still think of themselves as righteous, moral, and good? Psychologically, something is required to create that cognitive dissonance, and that is denial. It's just like the denial that we face with any kind of grief or loss in our lives. We go into denial and pretend that it didn't happen. When bad things happen, we go into denial. Things that we are painful that we don't want to face, we often go into a place of denial. Our whole history is a painful truth we do not want to face. And so one of the things that that quote from Baldwin is trying to do is to get us to, to get out of denial and to go back to facing the truth of our reality, our history, and that will pull us and drag us out of denial into a place of responsibility, into a place of reality and truthfulness instead of living in denial. Denial is the perfect place to live when you have bought into a lie, uh, the lie that whiteness is good and virtuous and great or neutral. And to live there, you need denial to live in those lies. Um, and so I think whiteness functions very much for white people. And I think even more so in the church in some ways as a, as a logic of denial. And here's where things get really hard, David. White people are conditioned into denial around their racial identity. Meanwhile, people of color in America, particularly African-Americans, are living in a constant state of trauma related to their uh, racial identity in America. Constantly traumatized, reliving the history of 400 years of trauma. We've lived in 400 years of denial, benefiting from that history. Then you bring a white person in denial into a room with a black person who's in a constant state of trauma into a conversation with each other. It's no wonder racial dialogue doesn't work. You know, folks who are in denial can't talk to folks in trauma, especially when the denial and the trauma is about the exact same thing. It's just never going to work. So all this business of if we could just get black and white people together to talk and have interracial dialogue, that would solve all the problems. That's not going to solve any problems if white people are still in denial when they show up for those conversations. They're just going to further traumatize and further harm people of color and especially African-Americans um, through, their, through their inability to understand their own history and their own story. So that's the psychological side of it. And then to go to the, the theory side of it, the, 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 the philosophical, the sociological, the historical, that's where we need tools to help us to say, how do we study this as a phenomenon scientifically? and be able to describe it in as careful a way as we can. And so we have sociology and other tools that give us the ability to do that. And one of, those, one of the languages that sociology and philosophy give us is the language of ideology. And ideology is a, a concept, a thought, a system of thought and ideas that has the power to captivate large groups of people. Um, Nazism is an ideology. You know, there are many other ideologies out there. Patriarchy, you could consider an ideology. Um, you might, some might even call evangelical Christianity an ideology. There are many ideologies out there, um, but whiteness is a very particular ideology. It's 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 the the dominant ideology in American society, and we've seen this on display recently in some pretty stark ways. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the 
the Trump presidency, which was which was a lot of ideology, a lot of white ideology there. But I think January sixth was an example, uh, you know, of white ideology. Um, I think these we've had these court cases going on at the, simultaneously of both um, uh, the killers of Ahmad Arbery and Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, and in one case, there was, uh, you know, a verdict that, uh, you know, the, of justice and another case an acquittal. Um, but whiteness was operating in both of those cases as you walk through and think about how the judges talked, how the prosecutors talked, uh, the claims that they were making. How, how do you claim self-defense, uh, you know, uh, for killing uh, pro other protesters, bringing a gun to a protest or chasing somebody down a street? Whiteness is its own form of self-defense. And so there was an appeal back to the logic and the history of whiteness as this kind of idea of protection. I should be able to do whatever I want. I, I have impunity as a white person. Uh, I can claim self-defense if I attack a black person. I can claim self-defense as white people have for 400 years in American history. Um, and so we saw that on display. And, and, and through that, we can see the way white ideology continues to work in our legal system, uh, in our society, in the way that police um, police different communities differently, um, in the mass incarceration of so many people of color. Um, I could go on here uh, in the way politics is used, in the way the church operates. Um, but yeah, so I, th I think we need all the tools, psychology, sociology, because we're dealing with something that is like a many-headed monster. It's a hydra. It's a legion. And so there's no way we can just go at it with theology or just go at it with spirituality. We can't just pray it away. We need all the tools we have, history, sociology, psychology, theory, philosophy, to try to go after this, this many-headed monster. Well, you say that the task of the church then is to help um, uncover uh, and to work against uh, this denial. And so you have developed a course yeah uh, help that process uh so let's let's talk about that uh just because yeah. one of the things uh you know I, I, my audience knows that uh a person that's been very influential in my own uh journey of understanding my whiteness and is has been made of commerce and um, yeah yeah and 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 made a uh talked about as, as i said in my spoken intro um the importance of, of white people telling their own racial story uh, and so you kind of incorporate that as a process uh, in this course. Talk, talk to us about the course. Yeah, I, th I agree with Maida so much on that. And she's been influential in my own journey as well. Um, so I'm glad we were able to talk about her. So I, I, here's how the course got started. I've been having, I've been a pastor for, of predominantly white, white dominant, progressive Baptist congregations. Yes, some of your audience hopefully will know there are progressive Baptist congregations, but there are many in America uh, that don't fall into the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's been my my journey as a as a pastor. I've pastored three progressive uh, white, wealthy congregations uh, in America, uh, mostly in the South, Alexandria, Virginia, Cary, North Carolina and down Charlotte. And every one of those churches that we've had dialogues about race and racial justice every time. And it usually happens something bad would happen in the world and it would become time where we felt like we needed to have a study. We'd do a book study. I found myself always frustrated by the lack of progress that that would actually really have spiritually, um, emotionally, um, and also politically in the, in the lives of the members of, of those churches. And so 
when I got to Myers Park, uh, the door was wide open for, for us to do some things. And I partnered with an associate minister we had at the time here, who's now a senior minister at another church, Chrissy Williamson. And she and I developed this uh, awakening to racial justice, uh, racial injustice curriculum. And it was a year long. We brought in some experts from a racial racial justice group to lead us in a congregation, congregation-wide study for over a year. Every month we had events. And it just so happened we launched that the week that Keith Lamont Scott was shot by police in Charlotte, and we were on the news of CNN every night for a week as our our city uptown erupted with protests and an uprising over the killing of, and also because the police would not release the video footage. So there was just protests all over the streets. I had only been here six and a half months at this new this new church, and um, it was a very tumultuous time. That series continued and up until the Trump election that year. And after the Trump election, I happened to have already invited uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, formerly of Moral Mondays, to preach on the Sunday after the election. And <laughs> he preached on the Sunday after. He didn't want to come because uh, things were so bad after the election results. We both thought it was going to go a different way. And, but he came and he preached for an hour and a half on race. Uh, at a at a three hour service that we held in the evening, uh, and he he went at it. It was a very powerful sermon. It was incredibly clear, and I will have to say after that, a, a number of my members had what I would consider to be a white fragility meltdown, uh, white guilt meltdown, not knowing what to do politically or theologically or socially with what he heard, what they heard from William Barber. Some wanted me to rescind any invitation that we'd made to him to promise that he'd never be able to return and all kinds of strange things like that. Um, and so we got entered into a long period of discernment about why were people reacting that way. And I started to realize, wow, we've done a whole year long study on race and people still haven't gotten it yet. I mean, we've done more than most churches will ever do. Most white churches will ever do. And people who I thought got it hadn't gotten it. I've just got, I got so frustrated by that, David. I have to tell you, and so I, I decided something's wrong here. What is going on? Why can't we make any more progress? Myers Park's a very progressive church, you know, and has been on the front lines of racial justice issues in the city, busing, integration, for its whole history. How could we not be making the progress that I, then I realized um, something was wrong, something was up, and I needed to do some work to try to find out. So I embarked on a two-year spiritual journey uh, through the Upper Rooms Academy for Spiritual Formation. And as I was going through that journey, uh, just kind of doing lots of soul searching myself. I had this sort of moment, this epiphany, and I was also doing a, a, a doctoral degree at the same time. And, and this epiphany kind of brought everything together. And it was that the reason that we weren't making any progress was me. I was the impediment. And I, I was expecting people to go to a place that I had never gone. And you can't take anybody to a place that you've never been. You can't lead anyone to a place you've never gone. And so I realized that it was, I had not looked at my whiteness. I had not wrestled with whiteness and confronted my whiteness in a way that would allow me then to begin to lead others down that process. So I went on my own journey of trying to confront my whiteness and what it means. And I was astonished at what I found. I went into the journey hoping to find something redeemable about whiteness, David. Um, and I did not find anything redeemable. There's not much redeemable about evil. I found that people who are trapped in it are redeemable but that the ideology itself is not redeemable. 
And so I, I began to think, what, could, what if I created a, cor- a course that I could help people walk the same journey I've walked uh, in church settings and, uh, and give them the opportunity to take this journey? And so I cultivated this nine-week uh, process that begins with inviting every participant to write their racial autobiography. And this is a document, there's a little prompt that says, write the, the story of your racial identity uh, with vignettes and stories about your upbringing and your life, going to school, etc. And, you know, um, it's a very interesting uh, exercise. Most people have never written a lot on their racial identity. And most white people have never even really thought about it that much. So it gives people a place to start beginning to writing. And this is an ongoing, lifelong document. Most people start writing it and they think they're going to complete it and it's going to be done. But actually, we found that participants just keep writing in this for the rest of their lives. It becomes an ongoing spiritual practice of journaling where they're constantly writing about their racial identity. The other thing then we do is a curriculum. Every week we meet for an hour and a half and the curriculum that we've that people will have participated in beforehand is reading black authors and intellectuals and creatives writing about whiteness. Let me say that again. Black intellectuals, authors, and creatives. There's no white authors that we read. Only black intellectuals, authors, and creatives. And only what they've said about white people. There's a whole field of literature. It's, it's vast. Uh, you might call it white life literature is one way it's been described. It's people like Toni Morrison and uh, many others throughout uh, American history who write about white people. Black authors who've been trying to... What I've learned is they've been trying to hold up a mirror to white people to get us to see ourselves through their eyes for hundreds of years. And we're in our denial. We've not been able to do it. But by creating a curriculum where we're forcing people racialized as white predominantly to to read authors of color writing about whiteness, it creates that catalyst where we look in the mirror and we have no choice but to either to look and deal with what we see or to look away. And then each week we meet for a session to process the material that we've read. And I've added now movies to it. We also watch movies. And every week is based on a different theme. So the first week is whiteness as property. Then it's whiteness as evil. Then whiteness as mythology. Whiteness as terror. Whiteness as principality. And whiteness as nationality. With uh, with wrap-up sessions and beginning sessions on either end. We start with reading Baldwin's A Fire Next Time. And then we read some articles each and every week and watch a movie every week. Uh, and then people come together in the course and, and wrestle with what they've discovered. And I also found that this this work can't be done alone. People need community. They need to come together to have both accountability and support as they walk through this road. To me, the best metaphor that I have for this is Dante's Inferno. And it's like walking Virgil, walking you through hell. Our facilitators are like Virgil. The only reason they know the way is because they've walked it once before. And everybody gets singed. Everybody gets gets burn up a little bit again, but we follow Virgil as Virgil leads us on this pathway uh, through hell as we come to reckon with the, the horrific history that we don't know and the ideology we've been trapped in and what we can do about it. Um, and it's been a very powerful process. The other thing is I've learned that you can't do it alone. You gotta have You have to have partners and people to help us walk through it. You also can't do it without spiritual practices. And by that, I consider silent meditation specifically, as well as that practice of journaling and the racial autobiography. Uh, So every session begins with silent meditation, three to five minutes of just sitting in silence. It's guided uh, for those who are new to that practice. 
And what we've learned through scholars who study mindfulness and race is that mindfulness practices help white people particularly to be prepared to go deeper on topics of race. And, and, and it helps us get out of our egos enough to be humble and say, oh, yeah, I can see that. I can see that and not get go into guilt or fragility or anger or rage and give space for us to be able to to wrestle with the emotions that are coming up and be uh, more self-aware about those emotions. So we've been leading this course now. I started after the murder of George Floyd. So I defended my dissertation on this in April of 2020. Uh, and less than a month later, George Floyd was killed. And I felt deeply compelled, even though I wasn't really prepared for it at the time, that I needed to start offering the course for, for people racialized as white. It came actually, David, to be really honest with you, from a conversation some white pastors had after the murder of George Floyd. We were on a group email chain with black pastors in the city trying to organize a response to the murder of George Floyd here in Charlotte. And some white, pa some white pastors were saying some things, black pastors were saying some things. And finally, black pastors said, why don't y'all go make a statement? We're always making statements. Why don't you white pastors go make a statement? White pastors thought, yeah, no, this is the time. This is the right moment. So we got off in a little affinity group of white pastors, and one of them wrote the statement and brought it back to the group, and it was basically three sentences. Um, we're sorry. We care. We'll change. No acknowledgement of race, systemic racism. No acknowledgement of white supremacy. No acknowledgement of the history of racial injustice in America. No acknowledgement of the history of policing or mass incarceration, nothing specific, just we're sorry, we care, we'll try to change. And I, at that point, just could not in good conscience sign on. And I asked them if they would add white supremacy or systemic racial injustice. And they said, if we do that, we're going to lose some of these pastors that won't come along with us. They won't be able to sign it. And we want a large group, a big tent. And I was like, well, then count me out. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to put my name on a statement that does not acknowledge white supremacy or systemic racial injustice. So I wrote my own statement and took it to the Observer, tried to get it published. The Observer didn't really want to deal with it. So I just published it on Facebook and some friends and I wrote it together, uh, other clergy leaders. And then we asked people to sign on with us. And that's where how we built the first groups from the people who signed on to that statement. Um, and the statement was basically, instead of being, we're sorry, we care, it was white people stop asking what can I do? You know what to do. And here's, we know what to do. Let's do what we, what we know we need to do. Uh, and it called people to begin to take seriously their history, to do the deep work that is required uh, to be able to show up differently in the, in the freedom movement um, and the social justice movement in America, having taken responsibility for our whiteness and our white racial identity. So that's what we started now to this point, David, we've had over 300 people go through the course. Uh, we have 30 facilitators who are trained facilitators who are leading courses all over the place. I've done the course now, led the course personally 13 times for 13 different groups. And we only allow groups of six to six to 10. So that's why it's taking longer. And it's not just going out everywhere. We really want to keep the groups small because we see more transformative impact there with smaller groups. The facilitators, the people who become facilitators, the people who've gone through the course have become so committed to this work. And I've had people who've never been through any anti-racism work to people who've been doing anti-racism work for 30 years in an academic setting go through the course and still find tremendous benefit. Uh, some of those who've been doing anti-racist work for 30 years say, I've never done anything like this. This has been much more powerful to me than any of the other trainings that I've had because as white people, they've never had that, 
that chance to really focus on their white racial identity and to see that as the problem at the core of the issue of racism in America. So yeah, we're at this point now where we had a conference back in November where we brought everybody together who's been through those courses and we had great speakers there. Uh, Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes was our keynote. We've also partnered with an organization here locally called Brownicity that does anti-racist training uh, of, for all different age groups, for children, for schools, uh, at many different levels. And our course is being offered through Brownicity. They have a, they're a learning community. Um, and we're so we're still offering the course. And some are talking about what's the next course. Uh, and I'm also under contract with Upper Room uh, working on creating this as a published curriculum that we can get into the hands of people all over the country. Well, our time is up, <laughs> but um, what you have said is vitally important. Uh, the work you're doing uh, is profound and very needed, and I am grateful uh, for what you're doing. Uh, and I'm looking forward uh, even though I've had made this class, uh, I would also, I'm also looking forward to the possibility of uh, participating in yours. I'd um, love for you to David. Yeah. Anybody who's interested in finding out more about that, you can go to Myers Park Baptist church website or to the Brownicity website to learn more about the course. Okay. And, uh, I will include that in my blog spot Great. Uh, that folks can read. So, well, again, thank you, Ben, oh, for being David, with me today. Pleasure. Yeah, it's really been a great time talking to you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Well, you're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe, and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.